I grew up in the slums of Lagos, Nigeria. This concept of falling forward has helped me throughout my life. I walk into every situation knowing I can see the other side and be successful. And our mission today is keeping working families in their homes. We are now at half a million rental units in 40 states in the country. The average white family has 10 times more wealth than their black counterpart. We spoke to over 300 venture capitalists and no one essentially wanted to give us money. Relationships matter. Invest in them. This is what Isusu means. If you want to go fast, you go alone. But if you want to go far, you fundamentally go together. What's up Unfound Nation? Dan Kihanya here. Thanks so much for checking out another episode of Founders Unfound. That was Abby Weimimu, co-founder and co-CEO of Isusu, a revolutionary fintech platform transforming the connection between data, tenants, and property. Isusu empowers renters around the most important financial identity, the credit score. And listen to this story arc. He was raised in Lagos, Nigeria, went to school in the United States, worked on the Obama re-election campaign, launched his first startup, and even did a stint with Goldman Sachs, all before starting Isusu with his co-founder, Samir. Keep on listening to hear this wonderful tale. Our episode is sponsored by Founders Live, a global platform built to inspire, educate, and entertain the modern entrepreneur. Be sure to visit founderslive.com or check for a link in the show notes. This will be our last one-on-one interview for 2020. We're dedicating our episodes in December to updates. We want to check in with former guests and see what they've been up to and how they've fared with the remainder of 2020. In the meantime, please support us by following and subscribing to our podcast. We can use all the help we can get. We're available anywhere you like to listen. And if you're inspired, drop us a review on Apple Podcasts or Podchaser.com. We'd love to hear from you. I know this has been a tough year for many of you, and I truly wish that the upcoming holidays can bring you some peace and joy. Now, on with the episode. Stay safe and hope you enjoy. Hello, and welcome to Founders Unfound, spotlighting the best startups you don't know yet. We bring you stories of exceptional founders from underrepresented backgrounds. This is episode number 23 in our series on founders of African descent. I'm your host, Dan Kihanya. Let's get on it. Today, we have Abby Weimimu, co-founder and co-CEO of Asusu, the leading financial technology platform that leverages data solutions to empower tenants and improve property performance. Welcome to the show, Abby. We're super excited to have you on. Thanks for making the time. Thanks a lot, Daniel, for having me. Incredibly excited to engage in this thought-provoking conversation. Terrific. Well, first, let's help the listeners understand what exactly is Asusu and what's it all about? Yes, Daniel. Asusu is a platform that lets everyday renters report their rental data into the credit bureaus to build their credits. Right now, 1% of rental data are being captured in the United States, but rental data, which is the largest monthly expense, is not included. So at Asusu, we decided to capture this information reports it for residents so they can build or establish their credit scores. It's a brilliant innovation for sure. And I want to get more into unpacking exactly what it is. But let's switch gears a little bit and start with who you are and where you came from. You're originally from Nigeria, is that right? Correct, Daniel. I grew up in the slums of Lagos, Nigeria. And, you know, just it's been, a, it's been an incredible experience from Lagos to the United States. 
So help us understand, what does it mean to grow up in the slums? Because I think sometimes people in the United States don't exactly have a good visceral understanding of what that is. What does it mean to grow up in the slums? Yeah, so just a little history about my life. I was born in the southwestern parts of Lagos, Nigeria. I was born into a good family, but I lost my father at the age of two. My mother and I, who was a postal office worker, moved into our uncompleted building, literally 90 kilometers away from where our house was when my father was alive. In a situation where you live in the slums, there are a couple of things that are apparent in Nigeria. I didn't have constant electricity for close to 14 years of my life. When we moved into the house, my mother and I, we didn't have a running toilet. Um, Our bathroom was a makeshift one. My mother, because she was working at the postal office, essentially had to make miracles happen and also built a bathroom while we were living there. So essentially, we moved into an uncompleted building with the little money she had um, working. She built it while we lived there. And certain amenities like a running toilet, no electricity, um, and other basic things were just not prevalent. Wow. And what's your memory of that? I mean, it's, you said your father passed away when you were two. Sounds like it was kind of a sudden disruptive thing. When did you start to acknowledge kind of your surroundings? Did it just feel like this is what life is? Or did you have some sense of like, this is different from what other people are experiencing? You know, it was actually interesting. I didn't understand the destitution of my social position until I went to middle school, which is one of the best middle slash high school in the land. But my mother did everything to shield me from not feeling in a position of lack, number one. And number two, I was only exposed to what I was exposed to. So my mother's love was unwavering. Everything I wanted as a kid, I got for the most part. I really got a good explanation as to why I couldn't get access to it. So my mother did a fantastic job and a lot of sacrifices to give me everything I needed at that point in my life. I think the juxtaposition was when I went to middle school, where I started going to school with you know, the senator's child, you know, the minister's child, or the ambassador's child, and in some cases, the ex-president's child. I understand the, the differences and the destitution of my social position, which prompted a lot of questions. But at that point, I had a solid foundation that my mother, without sacrifice, um, invested. That's so important. And that, that she sounds like an amazing woman, for sure. And I would imagine that it helped you have some confidence and some wind in your sails when you entered that environment with all these sons and daughters, maybe of these prominent people. Did you feel like you had to constantly prove yourself or anything? Or did you feel like I belong here and just whatever happens outside of school is whatever it is and I belong here? Or did you feel that sense of sort of like having to prove yourself at all? I never felt like I needed to prove myself because I fundamentally believed what my mother instilled in me was I am enough. A lot of people don't say that. My mother has always emphasized that, you know, you are created to live the life you were created to live and you have a special assignment on this earth and you are enough. So that strong grounding and the rhetoric my mother puts in my head always made me go into situations saying, you might have all the riches in the world, but at the end of the day, you have one head, I have one head. You have two eyes, I have two eyes. We're all the same. You might have a little bit of a leg up from a resource standpoint, but whatever you can do in life, 
I can also achieve. That's the way I was raised, not to give any excuses, work hard, and always be better than the status quo. I love that. That's a great mantra. And so you have the ability to go to these schools that sound like is great educational opportunities. And tell us about how that got you to the United States. My story and journey to the United States was, like I said, my mother believed education was the paramount investment in any child's life. She afforded my school fees to one of the finest middle schools slash high schools in the land, which cost us 60% of our salary. What that led to was all my classmates were going to Europe, the United States, and different parts of the world for their next evolution for college. I got into what you will consider the Harvards of colleges in Lagos, Nigeria, the University of Lagos, and I elected not to go. Elected to take time and self-study the SAT because I wanted to latch on to this thing called the American dream. My mother was very annoyed and... <laughs> Almost disowned me from not going to university. Um, but I, I saw this bigger picture, which was kind of a, a problem she created by letting me go to these schools because I saw beyond what great was for us. One thing I always say is good is the enemy of great. So I self-studied for the SAT, applied for the University of Minnesota because that's all I knew at that point. And lo and behold, I got in and did my first semester online because I couldn't afford the first year of college and then came to the United States from 84 degrees weather on an average in Lagos to negative 22 degrees on a cold winter. How did you adjust to that? It was tough. It was, it was a character building experience. I almost turned back when I landed in Minnesota. I was on a three-piece suit. I'll never forget. I just felt as though this was the coldest place in the world. I couldn't just fathom how people lived in these conditions. Mind you, I'd lived in on an average 80 plus degree weather throughout my life. So it was a character building experience. I was depressed because I just saw sun every time. And in Minnesota, you can go months and months without seeing sun. But I also attribute my experience in Minnesota as a character building experience to look a little bit inward, study a lot, and to lay the foundation for who I am today. That's great. And yeah, it's cold there. Very cold there, for sure. I lived in Michigan and in some of the upper Midwest. And, and, and like you said, coming from 80 degrees on average is quite a shock to the system. So tell us, you, you went through school in Minnesota and you come through. What was next after that? When I immigrated to Minnesota, I went to the University of Minnesota for undergrad. And I have always been impressed by this notion of President Obama being elected and I was in Nigeria when that happened the first time. And the second time I had an opportunity to, you know, help do community organizing on campus and around the northwestern region of Minnesota for President Obama's re-election campaign. We joined and did community organizing, spoke to people that are fundamentally different than I am. And that I learned a lot about myself. Uh, and then I created a water company that builds affordable water infrastructure in developing countries. And while in college, that company went on to provide access to water for over a quarter million people. And I finished at the University of Minnesota with a degree in business and marketing and psychology. My next journey was to go to graduate school in New York at New York University. 
to really understand the intricacies of development finance. Nice. Well, that's like 10 years of accomplishment in a small amount of time, starting companies and helping with the election campaign, re-election campaigns. Amazing stuff. I mean, what gave you the confidence? I mean, obviously, you talked a lot about your upbringing, especially when people come from outside the U.S. into the U.S. It, it takes a while just to adjust to being here, much less to figure out how to thrive or be a leader here as well. What kind of kicked in for you to sort of do these things, which, frankly, people who live here, who grew up here, don't take on? It's a good question. Um, and I get asked this question a lot. You know, I have always been brought up with a notion of not having anything to lose in life. And this concept of falling forward and not having anything to sit back on has helped me throughout my life. I walk into every room like I belong because I am enough. And I walk into every situation knowing I can see the other side and be successful. So for me, it's always been public service. It's always been something I have latched onto and doing something greater than myself to make sure others have a fighting chance, to make sure we can move forward as a society. It's always been something that I, you know, I had a strong inclination to. So everything I have done from working for President Obama's re-election campaign in places that were quite different than, you know, what the status quo will be for his um, base or starting clean water for everyone that provide access to water for a quarter million people. That was also about, you know, how can we provide access to people? So that has been my modus operandi that it's not about me, right? It's about the collective and it's about a greater good. And how do I contribute my own humble quarter to the change eminent? in the world. And that's what I've always followed. If it's practical, if I'm able to accomplish something while doing it, that has a positive impact on people's lives, I usually get on the train and get it done. That makes a lot of sense. And that's a great philosophy and approach to life. And it certainly makes sense that it would set you up for the venture that you're ultimately working on now, Susu, and we're going to hear a lot more about that. But right now, we're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back with Abby Weimimu from Isusu. Hey, everyone. This is Nick Hughes, founder and CEO of Founders Live. We are the global venue for modern entrepreneurs, where we inspire, educate, and entertain entrepreneurs through our global online platform, the community where you can find various aspects of education, help, and inspiration to make you a better entrepreneur, as well as our fun pitch competitions that are virtual and in-person when possible, where we highlight emerging talent from all corners of the world. Join us to help with our pursuit of entrepreneurial equality, which says no matter what you look like, where you are born, how you identify gender or orientation, everyone deserves equal opportunity for success and wealth creation. So find our membership options at founderslive.com. So we're back with Abby from Asusu. So Abby, after grad school, you entered the financial world, and that must have given you some insights that ultimately led to Asusu. Tell us a little bit about your experiences. I know you were at Goldman Sachs and PwC. Tell us a little bit about how you ended up there and what, what sort of insights you developed there. You know, in grad school, I went to study development finance, how I can essentially leverage my business acumen from undergrad to impact the African continent and do something greater than myself. 
So that journey started. I had a core focus on why I was going to graduate school was just work at the UN or do development um, work. During that time, I met with President Obama's former chief technology officer on the transition team, Beth Novak, who was also a college professor then at NYU. And she was really passionate about this idea of open governance and how transparency in government spending can better the world. So I joined our class and then my projects in our class turned into a little company. And what we were doing essentially was mapping international development finance on the African continent. So let's say the World Bank invests in Nigeria and Ghana, you know, and they, they invested in two water projects. Are people talking to each other? Are they exchanging lessons learned? And are we spending the capital in a transparent manner? So we created a map that documented all that information. And we found out a strategic company had had a lot of funding to create something similar. So that idea was acquired from us. And I really fell in love with the idea of you could create value and something being acquired and then you're still having a positive impact. It increased my yearning to go to the private sector to learn more. So I finished my capstone working for the European Commission on a $30 billion project. And sequel to that, I went on to work at Accenture in Lagos, Nigeria, and then Goldman Sachs, really focused on risk there, and then PricewaterhouseCoopers on mergers and acquisitions. So how do you buy, sell, separate companies? And following that experience, um, I thought I had a strong grounding on exactly what how my business acumen and then my impact experience in graduate school could have a lot of value in the marketplace. So after that, my co-founder and I got together. We've known each other for over seven years, essentially my work husband, uh, <laughs> one of my friends and confidants. And we started Isusu. So my private sector experience, um, doing a second company in graduate school, really created the foundation to start Isusu, not just trying to figure something out but we knew what success metric looked like and we also knew what it felt like to be in those big institutions to create now what is known today as a susu that's a great foundation it makes a lot of sense tell us about what, what was the kind of key seminal observation or insight that led you and your co-founder to say there's an opportunity here and that opportunity is what the susu is so something happened when my mother and I came to the United States. We came to the United States. We didn't have a credit score, which is the most important financial identity metric anyone could have. We walked into a bank to borrow money. We were turned away because the bankers couldn't quite underwrite the risk. That led us to go borrow money from a predatory lender, a payday loan lender at over 400% interest rates. Man. And in addition to that, my mother pawned my father's wedding ring and a whole bunch of jewelry. And that's how we really got our start in Minnesota. So really inspired by that experience and my co-founder's personal family experience, we started Isusu on three main premises. Number one, where you come from, the color of your skin, and above all, the financial identity shouldn't determine where you end up in life. So based on that premise, that's when we got the idea to always figure out how do folks get access to more cash flow? How do they get more cheap debt? And how do we create a win-win solution for everyone involved? And that's the core fabric and DNA of our company is really leveraging the power of data to bridge the racial wealth gap. That's our vision at Isusu. And our mission today is 
keeping working families in their homes through the power of rent reporting where they get more leverage so they're not being kicked out and as a society we're not solving evictions backward like i said earlier i think i think it's a brilliant innovation and this idea of removing the mask of risk for folks who can demonstrate financial trustworthiness for lack of a better term or at least consistency right and that not being connected necessarily to credit right and i think one of the really powerful aspects of this is that there is a commitment with rent right and if you create the savings program on top of it you have this wonderful set of data right that says this person knows how to or is consistent with their ability to to repay and to make these consistent intervals happen. So there's no reason why that can't be applied to credit. You got it. That's exactly what we thought. So practically, what we do today is work with large multi-housing developers, big, big developers that have tens of thousands of units, and answer three questions for them. Number one, we can help your residents capture rental data and report into the credit bureaus to boost or establish their credit scores which tends to drive on-time payments. Data from TransUnion, one of the credit rating agencies, shows 7 out of 10 renters will pay their rent on time if the data has been reported. And then number two is we also offer predictive analytics answering a simple question. What is the probability of residents in this building or across the portfolio to pay their rent on time? And then for those that can pay their rent, how do we create simple financial product like a susu we have zero interest loan options where the residents can borrow money and then pay us back and then they stay in their homes so if you think about it it's a win-win-win residents improve or establish their credit scores which gives them cheap access to finance and unmask the risk you talked about property managers can predict risk because they know what's going to happen next month even more important particularly during this dire times and number three of folks that can't afford to pay their rent, we are stepping in and providing affordable interest loans. So as a society, we're not solving homelessness backwards. I love that. I love that, solving it backwards. I mean, that's amazing. Tell us a little bit about what's the business model and sort of what's the progress? You mentioned that that you work with 200,000 units or property managers that uh, oversee 200,000 units. What's the business model and where, where are you in terms of the growth of the company? Great question, Dan. We've actually recently doubled that number. We are now at half a million rental units in 40 states in the country. That's what our partners cover now. And the business model is simple. We think it's unfair to put the cost on hardworking Americans and you know folks. So we pass that cost to the landlord and charge $2 per unit per month. And that takes care of the predictive analytics, the data reporting, and then access to our affordable pool of capital. So it's a very, very simple um, process. It's cheaper than a latte every month from Starbucks. That's the value we drive. And where do you want Asusu to go? What's the future vision? If you fast forward, you've had successful companies in the past. What does success look like for you in the future for Asusu? Success for Asusu in the future, in my mind, is really threefold. Number one, when we extrapolate further, there are 70 million people in this country that do not have a credit score and have been taken advantage by predatory lenders. The average debt in the United States 
is around $135,000, including mortgage. And we do know the biggest driver of wealth is homeownership. 76% of wealth includes homeownership. And we have a big racial divide whereby the average white family has 10 times more wealth than their black counterpart. So the world we see, number one, is how do we unlock access to more capital? Let's do the math. 70 million times 135,000 is over $9 trillion we can unlock in the American economy. That's just not only good for people, that's wonderful for the American economy and a lot of value that can be derived only if we include more people. Number two, this concept of capturing alternative data, only 1% of rental data has been captured today. Why don't we capture more data, which appears to be the largest monthly expense for individuals and make it more visible so we can underwrite and understand risk better. And the third step is really a vision of having a tapestry of data. So next time someone goes out there to borrow money, we're not only focused on the credit score, we're looking at things like what's the person's cash flow information from a saving standpoint? What's the person's rental history from a payment standpoint? Are people doing well from a savings perspective, either in a group or individual, we have a tapestry of information that can not only help us understand the risk, but accurately predict the potential of that risk. So that's the future we see. Number one, unlocking capital. Number two, capturing the data. And number three, having a tapestry of information. Fundamentally, think that's not only going to move the frontiers of these people we care about lives forward, but it's also profitable for everyone involved. That's powerful. And I can see why investors have come to your door. And we're going to talk about that for sure. We're going to take another short break and we'll be right back with Abby from Esusu. Hey, everyone. This is Nick Hughes, founder and CEO of Founders Live. We are the global venue for modern entrepreneurs, where we inspire, educate, and entertain entrepreneurs through our global online platform, the community where you can find various aspects of education, help, and inspiration to make you a better entrepreneur, as well as our fun pitch competitions that are virtual and in-person when possible, where we highlight emerging talent from all corners of the world. Join us to help with our pursuit of entrepreneurial equality, which says no matter what you look like, where you are born, how you identify gender or orientation, Everyone deserves equal opportunity for success and wealth creation. So find our membership options at founderslive.com. So we're back with Abby. So Abby, tell us a little bit about the fundraising journey that you've been on. I know that you've you've raised some money, um, had, had a couple of rounds. Tell us a little bit about how the investors and you came to partner. Did you choose them? Did they choose you? My co-founder and I had a very tough fundraising journey. I remember we spoke to over 300 venture capitalists and no one essentially wanted to give us money. I don't know if it's a function of what we looked like, but we had a lot of no's and it was incredibly painful. Despite our experience in corporate America or being you know, two times or three time founders, it was hard. But we had a breakthrough whereby you know some great impact investors like Acumen, the Global Good Fund, Sinai Ventures and just great people decided to take that bet on us. You know, our seed round was around $1.6 million. And then we raised follow-on capital just a couple months ago. 
And today we've raised over $4 million in funding and really just taking stock of the journey right now and seeing, you know, what 2021 holds. But our fundraising journey was hard, a lot of no's, but we persevered against all odds. And if you could do it again, are there things that you would change? Do you think you had to go through those 300 no's? Yeah, definitely. Hindsight is always 2020. It is. We desperately needed the cash at that point to not only affirm our value proposition, but to show the world that we can add a lot of value. If you ask me, is there anything we'll change? Maybe a more succinct story to see how everything ties together. But in retrospect, everything takes time and you can't really predict a lot of things. You have a working hypothesis and you need people to take a bet on you. So, right, I'm putting that burden on what I would change. I'd rather put that onus on society to give more people that look like me a chance because of our lived experiences, we can unlock a lot of things that the status quo would not otherwise see as opportunities. So, my answer to that question is not about what we would do different, it's rather what the owners and folks that control this pool of capital, what they can improve on and give a benefit of a doubt to founders like myself, which includes less than 5% of venture capitalists going out today. That's a great point, an excellent point. And you're right. I think there's uh, a different bar sometimes for folks that have credentials and validity and credibility. And you obviously have an amazing story and your company has a really great innovation and vision. And yet, it still takes this hard slog to get funding. And so there's definitely something that needs to change there for sure. So here's a question. If you had to say I'm reminded every day, you, you reminded every day, do you feel like you're reminded more in the business world that you are a non-US immigrant or that you are a black entrepreneur? I am reminded every day I'm a black entrepreneur. That's the way I see things and I think that's the way the world perceives me. If I'm walking on the streets of New York City and a police officer stops me, they're not trying to understand if I'm from Lagos, Nigeria. All they see is me being black. So I identify strongly as being black and that's the way I am viewed. That's the way I go about my life and that's the perception the world ascribes. You're right. There's no labels. There's no tattoos on your shoulder that says I'm from this place or that place. All they see is is skin. So tell me, as a Black founder, have there been organizations or mentors or even your investors that have been particularly helpful to you as a Black founder? Yeah, they've been a plethora. I, I stand on the shoulders of many giants that have paved the way for me to get the success and our company to get the success we've had to your date, you know, from different races, creed, gender, walks of life. It's a lot of people, you know, from mentors to investors to friends to family members. It's been it's been incredible. So, yeah, I think I, I stand on the shoulders of so many people. That's great. And I know you were with the Clinton Foundation and the Obama campaign. So you, you, your network must be incredible at this point of people that you know and can call on that have had collaborations with. So that I think that has probably been foundational for you as well. Yeah, it's been it's been incredibly pivotal in my growth as an entrepreneur, 
But we live in a world whereby relationships is everything and your reputation is everything. And that's the way I view life. It's I don't get opportunities just because of you know what I'm going to get in the future. All I focus on is how do we create value for each other and how can I be of help? That's the, that's the way I see my life. I've been very fortunate to walk alongside a lot of incredible people. I have the utmost respect for, but I always encourage this network to see life from a collective standpoint, right? An individualistic perspective. I like it. So as we get ready to wrap up here, one of the questions we ask people is looking for those areas of growth. If you could go back to say maybe your NYU version of yourself and give you advice about what to expect or what to look for or what to prioritize so that you could become the best version of the current Abby, what advice would you give yourself? The advice I would give myself just looking back is number one, you will fail, understand that, embrace that, but there's a lot of lessons to be learned. I've always believed there's a rainbow after a storm, but just always I always understand that and embrace the reality that for you to do something that you've never done before, you need to fail at certain things that will prepare you to get there. Number two would be relationships matter, invest in them. We are all a tapestry of the human race. And fundamentally, and this is what Isusu means, if you want to go fast, you go alone. But if you want to go far, you fundamentally go together. So understand the power of community and relationships. And above all, fall forward. Never have anything where you're going to fall back on. Don't take things overtly serious, but be very prudent in your ways. And just fall forward. Once you start thinking about things that are audacious, that people continue to question, that's when you know you're onto something interesting. So those are some of the things I would offer as advice. Great wisdom. Great wisdom indeed. So as we finish up here, Abby, can you tell folks how can they find out more about what you're working on? Is there something that we can do to help you as a community or to help Asusu at this point? Do you have websites or emails or social media handles you want us to know? Absolutely. You can learn more about what we are doing at Asusu at isususurent.com or you can go to isususurentrelief.com to help folks that can't afford rent right now. You can chip in a couple dollars. So as a society, we're not solving homelessness backwards. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Abby. We really appreciate the time. I know you're super busy, so thanks a lot. Dan, thank you so much for having me. Such a pleasure and um, keep up the good work, bro. We'd like to thank our guest, Abby Weimimu, and our sponsor, Founders Live. Don't forget to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts or simply go to foundersunfound.com forward slash listen to. That's listen T-O. And follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn at Founders Unfound. This podcast was produced by Dan Kihanya. Our music was composed by Bobby Cole, Kurt DeBeek, Jason Donnelly, and Enrique Molano Jimenez. Social media and other promotion by Umama Marzouk. I am Dan Kihanya, and you've been listening to Founders Unfound.